and take out your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, to the 8th chapter, to the 1st verse. It's on page 1780 in the Pew Bible. I want us to look at the first five or six words of this chapter. We're going to be looking at actually three chapters together today. Paul begins by writing, Now about food sacrificed to idols. These three chapters, Paul's helping the Corinthians live in their freedom in Christ. That's what these three chapters are about. Freedom in Christ. How do we live that freedom out? And it centers on a, an issue that, that we don't deal with much today. And so I want to take just a few minutes to put this, these three chapters into context so that what we, we look at the rest of the, uh, the, our time together will make sense to you. Idolatry was a, a way of life. 2,000 years ago. It was natural. It was everywhere. It impinged on almost every part of your life, socially, economically, religiously. It encroached at the dinner table, your dinner table, as well as your friend's dinner table. Temple culture and its sacrifices were woven into the very fabric of life back then. Life, simply put, revolved around the pagan temples. It was at the temple where you discussed the issues of the day. It was at the temple ritual feasts where people found employment, where people contracted business. Most of all, most if not all, the meat that people bought in the marketplace was leftover temple sacrifice meat. When one went to dinner at somebody's house, more than likely, if meat was served, it came from the temple. Practically speaking, if a person were to cut themselves off from all temple-related culture, then they were were going to effectively cut themselves off from almost all social functions and all civil interests. And this is what the Corinthian Christians were struggling with. So they wrote to Paul. And they said, what do we do about this? How are we to navigate a culture that is so permeated with paganism? How are we to navigate this culture and be a good witness to non-Christians? How are we to navigate a culture that is so infused with activities that are not necessarily sinful, but also might not be constructive for the Christian? How are we to navigate a culture where brothers and sisters in the same congregation feel differently about what is sinful and what is not? How are we to be a body? And so I think we can relate a little bit. 
You go to a movie with friends, and you arrive at the movie, and you realize that the movie is going to have a little coarse language in it, and your friends aren't Christians. What do you do? You're invited to a Catholic Mass by a good, good friend, and he wants you to go forward and take communion. What do you do? Local school is having a really cute first, second, and third grade Maypole celebration. What do you do? You're invited over to a friend's house for game night, and they pull out a Ouija board. It's going to be fun, a lot of laughs. What do you do? A brother in Christ, a dear brother in Christ, is convinced that the Old Testament unclean foods should still not be eaten. What do you do? You go to a party and they pull out a joint. It's legal now. One puff equals one beer. What do you do? How about the current movie, Beauty and the Beast? Apparently, there's one character in it who Disney has made an overt homosexual character who proclaims love for another male character. Do you go to the movie or not? Do you take your kids? Should you boycott Disney? I'm confused. How do you navigate a culture that is so permeated with sin? That's the question on my mind. That's the question on the Corinthians' mind. And so they write to Paul. And they say, what do we do? Now, if, if Paul was writing under law, if he was writing law, this chapter, these three chapters would look very different. He would just go down and say, do that, don't do that. Go there, don't go there. And that's what we want, don't we? Can I just open up the Bible and it just tell me exactly what to do in every aspect of our life? But Paul, again, is walking the knife edge here of Christian freedom. And it's not easy. I want to tell you, it's not easy being a Christian. Because you have to deal with things like this. Paul is not writing law. No, he writes knowing that the gospel gives incredible amounts of freedom to you and me. Paul also knows that that same freedom can cause great damage. That that same freedom, improperly expressed, can actually hurt another brother and sister in Christ. He knows that an incorrect use of Christian freedom can actually lead you and I into unwitting sin. So he gives three considerations. He says, consider three things as you navigate this culture. And I want to share them with you today. First, he says, 
Consider your brother. Consider your brother. The first freedom consideration is that you realize and you need to realize that your freedom is always limited by how mature or not mature your Christian brother or sister is. This is the freedom that he's dealing with in the first 13 verses of chapter 8. He writes now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in this world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came down and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still accustomed to idols, that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, or better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone who has a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak consciences, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Here Paul is dealing with the subject of meat that has been sacrificed on the altar of, well, the two big temples in Corinth were those of Aphrodite and those of Apollo. Meat that was sacrificed in those temples and then disseminated out into the marketplace. That's what happened. When, when you brought a bull to Apollo's temple and the priest sacrificed it, the priest would get some, give some to the family, and the rest, whatever's left over, just goes to the marketplace and is just sold. And so it's throughout the culture. And some in the church in Corinth were buying and eating this meat, while others were struggling as to whether that's proper or not. Was the meat in some way tainted, was their question. Does this meat bring us close to the god Apollo by eating it? Are we in some way participating by eating this meat? An analogy, and it's a poor one, but I'll share it with you anyway, might give us some understanding of how these brothers were feeling. Some Christians today struggle with whether we should eat uh, chickens that are not free-range chickens because of the conditions in which they are housed. Same thing with veal, right? It's a very cruel way of treating an animal for its entire life. They think it's cruel and inhumane, 
And they advocate to not eat these animals. They talk about it as not being good stewardship. Again, not a great analogy, but if you can begin to to understand the conflict that's going on there, that's why I share that. That's the conflict that's going on in these, these brothers' minds and hearts. So the first thing Paul does is he tells them the truth. If you look at verse 4, he tells them right out the truth about this meat and these idols. He says, so then, about eating meat, sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all, and there is no God but one God. Okay, he says, listen, there's no, there's no Apollo. There's no Aphrodite. No Zeus, no Diana of Ephesus. Those, those are not gods. There's only one God. That's all he's telling them there. So there's nothing spiritual about this meat. Eating it, not eating it, doesn't make a difference. So since this is the truth of the matter, all Christians are free to eat meat. Sacrifice to Apollo, Aphrodite, Zeus, whoever. Your conscience is free. That's the knowledge, and I use that word intentionally, that's the knowledge that Paul wants us to have, that God wants us to have. But that knowledge can be harmful. There's a big but there. That knowledge can be dangerous. Look at verse 7. He says, that's the truth. But verse 7, not everyone knows this. Some people who have been saved, new converts in the, in the Corinthian church, saved out of the pagan culture, have what we can maybe describe as a pagan hangover. They can't get over it. They've been doing it for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, and now they come to Christ, and they see that meat, and they go, that's spiritual meat. I'm doing something wrong if I eat that meat. The memory of what they used to do and what it means still haunts them. They think they are in some way sinning. And so, when they see you eat that meat, or when you tell them about the truth, which is the right knowledge that this meat is neither here nor there, or when you encourage them to eat, it's okay, you can eat this, go ahead. There's nothing spiritual about it, and they trust you because you're more mature in the Lord, and they eat it. They're still bothered by it. Their conscience is bothering them. So Paul says, listen, you've got to be careful how you exercise your freedom, what you encourage people who are not as mature as you to do. Because, verse 11, as you're encouraging them to do that and their conscience is bothering them, they're still seeing this as sin, but they're trusting you, you're destroying your brother. You're actually causing your brother or sister to sin. By application, we all know that somebody who is a Roman Catholic, who is accustomed to not eating meat on Fridays, they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and we tell them, you can eat all the meat you want on Fridays. But they 
are still bothered by it. They've been doing this for 62 years. And you go, no, no, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. No, really, you're free to do this. Here, here it says it right here in the Bible. They eat, and they're still bothered. And you go, I just matured my sister, my brother. No. You could be causing them to sin. Romans 14 tells us that if a brother or sister is convinced of something, even if it is not sinful, if they are convinced of it, and you, you force them to do something, you encourage them to do something that they're convinced that it's not right, he says, that's sin for that brother or sister. This is a hard concept, I know, to understand. It's not that that thing is intrinsically sinful, but their thought of it, they're going against their conscience, what they think is right. They're sinning. Or take a brother who has trouble eating veal. Can't do it. And you say, no, no, no. Go back to Genesis. We're stewards. We're rulers. It's okay. He eats. And he's just bothered. Your knowledge is destroying that brother or sister. Your freedom is causing them to sin. So Paul says, consider how you're exercising your freedom. Consider putting aside your freedom for that brother or sister. This is the loving thing to do. Verse 2, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You can live a life of flaunting your rightness in front of people, or you can love them and put aside your freedom. Consider others better than yourself. Honor one another above yourself. That sounds pretty scriptural to me. You see, just because you're right doesn't mean you're always right. Your knowledge can hurt a fellow believer if it is not tempered by love. Paul's going to expand on this in chapter 13 when he's dealing with a really prickly issue of spiritual gifts and pride. Martin Luther comments in Concerning Christian Liberty, which is a wonderful book. We just got it for the library. Sums up Paul's argument. He says, he writes, A Christian is, perfectly free, is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant, subject to all. That's what Paul is talking about. You're Lord of all, but you're also subject to all. This is the balance that Paul is trying to strike here regarding Christian freedom. And the second limitation Paul gives to our freedom in Christ has to do with another subject entirely. He leaves the subject now of meat sacrifice to idols. And he goes on to talk about going to idol feasts, temple celebrations and rituals. And he says to the people there, consider your decisions. Consider the decisions you're making. 
Consider your weaker brothers first. Consider your decisions second. And this is what Paul is dealing with in all of chapter 10. Look with me at chapter 10. He says, For I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they were all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. In one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common among man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up underneath it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate at the altar? Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an altar is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? In this section, Paul's dealing with the question as to whether a believer in Corinth can continue to participate in the temple rituals. Go to the sacrifice. Go to the temple and worship and conduct all your business. Keep all your friendships. Talk about what's going on in Corinth. That's what's going on at those ritual feasts. So on the one hand, Paul has just told them that eating meat sacrificed to idols is nothing. There's no God. It's not tainted. Go ahead and eat. Consider your brother, but go ahead and eat. But here he's saying eating the same meat in the context of a temple Worship service is not right. He warns, consider the decision you're making to go up that hill. Some knowing that the gods actually do not exist conclude that they can still go to the temples and participate in these sacrifices. 
They can do business, meet friends, pal around at these ceremonies. And Paul says, not true. Look at verse 14. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. He makes it crystal clear. Flee from it. Paul requires them to break from their pagan past. Sitting in a temple, watching the blood sacrifices, sitting through the ritual prayers, bowing down to the idol, smiling when they cheer to their God and look at you. Have you ever done that? Men on a golf course or wherever, a coarse joke is said, and they look at you and you go, hmm. Or women, if a woman in, in the context says something very disparaging about her husband, and they look at you and kind of laugh, and you kind of laugh. We do that, don't we? We participate, even though we're not participating. No, this is a totally different situation. He says, Paul says, you're not free in this sense. You can't go to the temple of Apollo and sit there and eat that meat. You're participating. You must flee. And he gives two quick reasons here. One is that idolatry is sinful and will be judged. That's the whole point of giving the background of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. That's the whole point. He's making an analogy here between the Jews in Exodus and the Christians in Corinth. The Jews came out of bondage by no no work of their own. God freed them from their bondage, their slavery. They went through the Red Sea, the baptism of the Red Sea. He's making a correlation there to the Corinthians being baptized. They were God's people and so are you, he's saying. Yet they never left idolatry. They thought that they could have God and the other gods. And he says, look at where their bodies were strewn. Not many of them made it. As a matter of fact, scripturally, we know of two people that made it out of the wilderness. Obviously, the allusion here is to the bronze, I mean, the golden calf. That Exodus 32, where the people just fell right back into idolatry. They're at the foot of the mountain. And we go, that's crazy. I mean, there's fire going on there. There's smoke going on there. Don't they get it? No, in their minds, they're going, God, Yahweh, golden calf. We can have our, we can do both. And that's what the people in Corinth were doing. Apollo, sure, fine. Yahweh, absolutely. We can do both. And Paul's saying, no. <laughs> you can't do it both ways. Here there is a clear and severe warning that those who still participate in idolatry will not reach the promised land. That's the analogy. We don't bow down to blocks of wood anymore, guys, do we? We go, how does this apply to me, really? I mean, this is an easy one. Can you go on to the third point, please, Blake? I got this one. We don't bow down to blocks of wood. Does that mean we don't have idols? that we have not left yet? How about the idol of your reputation? Whatever it takes, I'll protect it. What about the idol of materialism? I can have Yahweh and everything else I want too because I make a good living. How about the idolatry of money? The idolatry of work 
Well, God said it was good to work, so I'm going to work 16 to 18 hours a day, including Sundays. How about the idol of power or position? How about the idol of sex and of pleasure? I don't have to leave that. I can have Yahweh in that too. The idol of beauty. Even good things. The idol of family or spouse or children. You know, an idol is only something good that we make ultimate. That's all that is a definition of an idol. Something good that we make ultimate. Anything that you seek your meaning, purpose, and value in other than God, we must flee or else perish. I don't go to the temple of Apollo, Blake, no big deal. What about the idol of your reputation or money or family or kids? That is a warning that Paul is giving us. Paul tells them the second reason they shouldn't participate in temple feasts is because it is actually demonic. That's verse 20. Don't you know that you're participating in demonic activity? No, there's no Apollo. You're right. No, there's no Aphrodite. There's no Zeus. But who's behind that? He goes on in his second letter. Paul tells the Corinthians that Satan masquerades as what? Child of light. Light. He masquerades as something that, that is good. It's okay. That's that's neutral. Paul's letting them know the knowledge is that, that you are actually participating in, in a worship and allowing demonic activity into your life. He says, be really careful here. Be, consider the decisions you're making. Today, there's no sun and moon God. We know that there's no mother nature, no guy. She's done a really great job of making a comeback the last 20 years. There's no Buddha. There's no Allah. There's no Reiki force or yoga healing energy. But behind each of those is a force. There's only two forces in this world, guys. God and his angels and Satan and his demons. You have to know, you know, when I pass that Reiki sign, I go, what these people are allowing into their hearts and minds is not good. And people will sit next to you and say, ah, oh, yoga and, and, and Reiki, they, they've really healed me, they've really helped me. That is a deception. It's a deception. Kids, when you go to a party and someone pulls out a Ouija board, and they will, I want you to know that the power behind that, and there is power, the power behind that is scary. Consider your decision. 
on what you do there. Because it's real. As Christians, you have an incredible amount of freedom. But consider what you're doing with that freedom. Last consideration Paul wants us to do consider is our witness. So consider your brother, consider your decisions, and consider your witness. That's in verses 23 and following in chapter 10. He writes, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the any any anything sold in the meat marketplace without raising questions of conscience for the earth is the lords and everything in it if some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you don't you want to go eat whatever's put in front of you without raising question of conscience but if anyone says to you by the way this meat was offered in sacrifice then don't eat it both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience' sake, the other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal of, with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jew or Greek or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in an every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. The context has changed a third time that Paul is speaking into. You're at an unbeliever's home, a friend, and he offers you meat, and you are about to dig in, and he says, oh, by the way, this came from the temple of Apollo. And he's proud of that because he's a follower of Apollo. He just wants you to know. Paul says, you have a decision to make. He says, if he doesn't say anything, hey, refer back to chapter 8. You're free to eat. If he does say something, consider the witness. Consider what you're saying by eating that meat. And here's the twist. When he says that, the glory principle kicks in. The glory principle. What is that? Verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You have to consider what brings God more glory. Because it's not about you. It's not about you. You have to be thinking about what your actions are teaching this person who doesn't know Christ. What are your actions speaking at that moment? So if he mentions that this is meat sacrificed to Apollo, he says, don't eat. Verse 28, stop. Why? Because in the, in the unbeliever's mind, that meat means something. It's bringing them closer to their God, Apollo. And by you eating, you are sanctioning idolatry. You're saying it's okay. 
He needs to know that we cannot love and serve God and another God at the same time. In biblical language, that's called syncretism. You can't be a syncretist. You see, what you do with your freedom in Christ really communicates to this culture. What you do really communicates to the non-believer. So you go over to an unbeliever's house for dinner and they serve alcohol. And you take one because you know that a beer is nothing, just like a meat sacrificed to idol is nothing. But he says, oh, I thought Christians didn't drink. What do you do? What does your freedom in Christ tell you to do? What is your drinking communicating to that person? Have you ever stopped to consider what would give God more glory in that situation? You go to a movie with an unbeliever, and it does have a little coarse language in it. Free to go in, but have you ever stopped to consider what going into that movie communicates to that person who doesn't know Christ? Have you ever stopped, even paused to consider what at that particular moment would bring God more glory? You're invited over to a friend's house and they turn on the TV. And I might ruffle some feathers here. I hope not. And they turn to Joel Osteen or Joyce Myers. And they say, I know that you'd like to watch this. I do too sometimes. Let's watch together. Are you free to do that? But have you ever considered what that's telegraphing to that unbeliever? Or what would bring God more glory at that particular moment? You're going to go watch Beauty and the Beast with some friends from the community. It's a popular movie. You're free to go. But you've been told about this homosexual character. Should you pause in your freedom to think about what that's communicating? Or what would bring God more glory at that instance? You forego church. Because of your kids' activity. You're free to do that. But have you thought about what that's communicating to your children who maybe don't know Christ? Or you considered what brings God more glory. Talking about idolatry here. You see, you're free to do many things, Christian. But what Paul says is, consider your weaker brother. 
Consider your decisions. And consider your witness. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word, the sweetness of it, and the hardness. Change our hearts. By your power. In Jesus' name, amen.